the most powerful worship services I've ever been a part of took place in Port-au-Prince, Haiti. The congregation that I previously served had a relationship with this Haitian church. Much like here at Covenant, we have a relationship with congregations in Cuba and in Belize. I was part of a delegation from our church that was down visiting and learning from this congregation. And one of the days we were there, we were uh, a part of Sunday worship. It was an amazing gathering, hundreds of people coming together for this outdoor worship service. And as our delegation from our church was walking in, you could feel the excitement in the air. The pastor who had been our host come up and asked me if I wanted to be a part of leading the service. And I agreed and said, well, what do you want me to do? And he said, well, near the end, we're going to introduce you. We're going to uh, pray for you. And then we'd love for you to pray for us and for our ministry and for our church. And so I said, sure. The service was incredible. I was up on the stage with the leadership. The, the, the music was amazing. The uh, Holy Spirit was moving in the midst of that community. The pastor's sermon really just opened the scriptures and had a biblical and theological depth that just drew me in. And as I thought we were moving to the end of the service, I was uh, praying and, and asking God, you know, uh, what did he want me to learn and how could I pray for this church and what did he want me to say? And then as I'm there getting ready, the pastor announced that before we close, we were going to have another time of more music and worship and praise. The choir and the band began playing and the congregation began singing and my voice and these songs I was learning was joining into the singing and as the praise and the worship continued on, all of a sudden, people in the congregation started standing up and dancing while they were singing. There were people in our delegation that were standing and dancing and singing. Then all of a sudden, the leadership on the stage all stood up and began dancing and singing and I don't dance. I don't dance. I don't mean that I'm opposed to it. I mean that I can't. My wife is a really good dancer. She would love it if I could dance and we could go dancing together, but I can't. My children are both on a competitive dance team and, and I admire what they do and what their teams are able to do. But when I try to dance, it's like I have a concrete block tied to each of my feet and they just move slower and don't work the way that everyone else seems to be able to do. I mean, I had one incident here in Austin where my small group, we went to the broken spoke together. And I told him I couldn't dance. And like, listen, it's, it's two-stepping. It's great. It's fun. Really, anybody can do it when you just get there and learn. And yet, I almost got punched when I was there because I kept running into people, because I kept stepping on people's feet. I had one guy that was angry because he thought I was like mocking him and making fun of him as I was dancing with my wife. And I wanted to look at him and go, no, 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 this is my A game. I'm not making fun of you. I literally cannot do better than I'm doing right now. And so to be on a stage in front of hundreds of people and to start dancing fills me with an anxiety that was palpable. The scripture passage we read today is from Ephesians chapter 4, the first six verses, and this marks a turning point in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. The first three chapters which we've studied are much more about Paul's uh, theological and spiritual understanding of who God is, of the amazing grace that flows from Jesus Christ, of the work of the cross that is bigger, as we read last week, than anything we can ask or imagine, knocking down the dividing walls we've studied between Jew and Gentile, no longer any inside tracks of getting close to God. 
But the turning point that Paul makes in chapters 4, 5, and 6 moves now towards practical application. So the first three chapters are kind of teaching, and now Paul starts moving into the so what of his letter. So how do we live this out? So what does it mean? We see this in the language of the text that Ali just read. The first few words that Paul writes here are, I, therefore, a prisoner of the gospel. Paul writes and uses this word that's very important in the Greek language, therefore. It's a Greek word, om. And what it means is, is that Paul's signifying to his readers, I am shifting now. Jesus uses this word several different times in his teaching when he's connecting the, the teachings and theories with the practical application. We see this, for example, several different times in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, we read that Jesus says, Beware of practicing your piety before others in order to be seen by them, for then you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, whenever you give alms, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be praised by others. This therefore is the Greek word un, which Paul's using here. And Jesus is saying the teaching is to understand piety in this way. Therefore, when you give your tithes and your offerings, this is the practical way that you should do it. It's a connection word between theory and practical application. And Paul's using it not with a verse or two, but as one letter. This letter hinges now on this word, therefore. And we're now moving in a different trajectory for the rest of this United series. So that means that today is a really important and critical day because Paul's going to spend a lot of time talking about what this means practically for our lives, for our families, for our marriages, for our society. And so when you think about when you make a list of what matters to you, the first thing you put on a list is really significant, is really important. And today we're looking at the first practical application of the teachings from chapters one through three. Where does Paul begin? And what we read in the text is that where Paul begins before anything else is lifting up the importance of the unity of the church, the unity of the body of Christ. That in all these different cities and in all these different cultures in the New Testament, he says that we need to remember that there is one faith, one baptism, one God, the Father of all. He says that we're to called to pursue unity by being humble with one another and by being gentle with one another. That this is sacred and holy work, how we, how we seek to build up the unity of the body of Christ, the unity of the church, the unity among different believers. And if you're like me, that can give you a moment, a pause. Because while the church certainly stands for many things today, I'm not certain that we could claim that our unity is one of the things that we're known for. We see this in infighting of splits of denominations of people leaving a congregation because they don't like what the pastor said or they don't like the stance that is being taken. We feel this ease of moving to different places and we're all a part of it. We argue and bicker. We tell jokes about different denominations that A, aren't funny and B, just continue to highlight the differences we have with one another. And Paul is saying that the first sacred work that he wants the people in Ephesus to be practically working on is maintaining a spirit of unity in the midst of their diversity. Now, it's important to see and to remember that in the first three chapters, he teaches why. 
We talked about this dividing wall between Jew and Gentile coming down, and we talked about the fact that the reason we can work for this is because God is doing something larger than we can ask or imagine, that what God is doing is bigger than any of our perspectives or any of our traditions or any of our doctrine. And therefore, when we get around people of faith who approach things a little differently, we can learn about the fullness of the kingdom of God. It's like that analogy of if you take a number of people and blindfold them and then uh, allow them with their hands to uh, feel an object. The classic way of understanding it is to let them all surround and to feel an elephant. They can't see what it is they're feeling. And then they're asked to describe the animal. And one's feeling the trunk and describes it one way. One's feeling the tail and describes it one way. One is feeling the ears and describing it one way. And then they start fighting about who has the right description only to take their blindfolds off and realize they were all describing an aspect of something larger than what they knew was there. This is what Paul is saying, is that, is that we are to be working for the unity because it's how we grow and see the fullness of what God is doing in the world. That if we sit behind our own narrow perspective, as right and as normal and as comfortable as it might be, we miss the fullness he's taught us of what God's doing in the world. This is how we see the enormity of the kingdom through the diversity of the church. And I think what that means for us is, is, is less about action steps than it's about our attitude. I think that's where we need to start. I think if we're gonna take working for the unity of the church seriously, then what we need to start with is an attitude that when we approach other Christians or approach other cultures or approach how the church works in different parts of our city or different parts of our world or different small groups and how the church and faith work in the lives of the people that we're in small group relationship with, that there ought to be among all of us a spirit of curiosity and exploration. That too often what we do is we hear differences like, well, that's where you are, but this is where I am. And yet what we need to be doing is not surrendering our perspective, not surrendering our doctrine, but having a spirit of curiosity and learning. Might this be the way God allows me to see the fullness of the kingdom and the fullness of what a life in Christ can be through the people and through the other perspectives of faith and Christianity that are out there? I bet in your journey, if you think about it, there's all different kinds of people who have shaped and formed your faith that came from different traditions. And we're at our best when we have a spirit of curiosity about what it is they can teach us. I know in my own life that I've been shaped and formed by churches around the world that faith became real to me in a non-denominational missionary church in Japan, in rural Japan, run by two Norwegian missionaries. And while I don't know if I agree with every doctrinal statement they ever pulled out, it, it, it opened me to the fullness of who God was and, and, and unlocked for me a way of worshiping and a way of being that swept me off of my feet. I've been shaped and formed by my wife's family, uh, Christians in the South Wales Valleys that approach life and approach faith differently and it's informed and shaped and molded by pastors of Presbyterian churches, but also of other churches that have stretched me, of parachurch organizations, of people I've been in small group with, and the best I am, and I don't do it all the time, and I don't always do it well, but when we hear about these differences of approach, when I approach it with a spirit of curiosity and wonder, that's when often the amazing, miraculous thing happens, and my world moves from this to this. And it takes me back to a stage in Port-au-Prince in a place of deep discomfort. The pastor came walking over to me when he saw my discomfort and said, 
it's okay. You can be free here. And I said, and I will never forget looking at him and saying this. It's like, I hear that, but I don't dance. And he looked at me. He said, you're mistaken. No one here is dancing. We're worshiping. He said, you see yourself on a stage with a lot of people in front of you wondering what they think of you. They're not paying attention to you. They see themselves on a stage playing to an audience of one who loves them. He said, Thomas, you're on a stage playing to an audience of one. Think about that. Think about what that means and all the ways that we look for affirmation and all the ways that we look for a sense of who we are. I know for me, I spend more time worrying about how do people perceive me or how does this look or how does this image go for a pastor or for what I wanna be or, or does the, it kind of show the successes of where we wanna go and he's saying, no, you can be free of all that. Your life is on a stage played to an audience of one who already says you are loved. And so I stood. And I closed my eyes and I sang and I opened my arms and I worshiped and danced. And for a few minutes, felt free. This is the beauty of what it means to seek the unity of the body of Christ, to have a spirit of learning that in our best moments can shape and form our world. This is a time when the church needs to be asking seriously how it can pursue this, and we're doing that here at Covenant. It's also a time individually when we need to be doing this as families, as couples, as individuals. How are you seeking the beauty of God by celebrating and working for the unity of the body of Christ.